everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Music Biz Weekly Podcast, brought to you by the fine folks over at HypeBot.com. Thank you to Bruce and everybody for Thank everything Bruce. they do. And and Jay, before we get into introducing our special guest, I do think we need to make a big note, a congratulatory note. Yeah. Um, yeah, they've the been acquired by uh, our, our good friends over at Bands in Town. So another group of people that we work with and that we love, and it's great that they've joined forces. And and this does nothing to the Music Biz Weekly podcast. We are still here. We're getting bigger and better every week. So fear not. This great information we bring you every week is going to continue. Um, so, Jay, why don't you introduce the two guests we've got on the line with us today? We have, for the first time, two guests, and they just happen to be brothers. We have uh, Jeff Brabeck and Todd Brabeck, and they have, uh, they came to my attention. I mean, I've heard their names before because, you know, they've been around forever, um, and they've written a fantastic book called Music, Money, and Success, The Insider's Guide to Making Money in the Music Business. Here, I'll just show you on the screen for those of you watching video. Um, you can see this book, and we just wanted to talk to them about this this thing. Uh, Jeff and Todd, welcome to our show. Thank you. Our, our pleasure. So, so, so guys, guys, let me let me let me throw go ahead. A, 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 a softball question out. So, anybody who buys this book is going to become a successful musician. Well, whoever, what we're trying to do with the book, uh, you know, talent hopefully will win out, but the, the aim of what Todd and I have been trying to do, uh, you know, since we got into this business, uh, when there were really no really books around that were really practical, at least in our opinion, was to actually educate people as to how the business works, especially in the area of music publishing and, and licensing of songs, uh, including you know, song, uh, master recordings as well. So at least you're aware of, you know, if you get a request from a user, say a TV station, a TV producer, a video game producer, uh, an app developer, et cetera, and they want to use your music, at least you know what the basic terms are that you're going to be requested to, to agree to, and also basically what's pretty much a good deal what's a medium deal, what's a bad deal. And the thing is that we wanted to do is give people enough practical, real-life information out there. So even if you decide to make a deal which is not in your best interest because you really need the use, at least you'll be aware of what you're doing and you just won't be scratching your head saying, what does this all mean? So that would, that's one of the main reasons. Todd, you want to jump in? Yeah, and one of the most important things that, that the book has and was from inception when we started writing it was we attach dollar figures to everything because, you know, we're dealing with people who want to make a living in this in this business. I mean, amateurs buy the book also and stuff. It's good for them, but it's primarily for people trying to make a living and figuring out what can they make from all these different types of uses, you know, whether you have a performance on the song of yours on The Voice or you have you sell a, a million downloads or limited downloads or you you're have 10 million streams on Spotify or mm -hmm. 40 million on YouTube or Pandora. We attach dollar figures to all this stuff, including the foreign country area, which most people don't think about, but for any successful songwriter or a composer, the foreign income coming in from foreign countries can far surpass what you're making domestically. So it's really we go across the whole board as to uh, values, deals, uh, structure of deals, negotiating tactics, uh, uh, you name it, really. 
Well, one of the things that really struck me um, when I heard about this book, I bought the book, and I couldn't believe, first of all, um, how comprehensive it is. How well, it's a very big book. <laughs> There's a lot of information in here, and you know, I just started going through it with a highlighter pen because it's it's a good read, but it's also a good reference book. Um, and it comes back to a an ongoing theme that Michael and I have been stressing for a long time, and that is to artists of every level to educate yourself. You know, there's been some articles that have come out recently about artists that weren't even aware of what their recording contract entailed. But I, I wanted to touch base on one of the first things that struck me. It was in the introduction. One of the kind of subheadings said experience plus knowledge plus talent plus representation plus luck equals success. And man, I, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Can you speak to that a little bit, what that means? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, you know, the luck aspect, you know, you need it somewhere along the line, whether it being in, at the right place at the right time, being at the right conference at the right time, saying hello to the right panelists, uh, you know, having uh, an NPR station, you know, perform your song uh, because uh, the, the DJ respected it. You know, there's loads of things there, but a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, representation, first of all. You know, knowledge and representation are, are essential here. What we try to emphasize to every single creator, you know, whether it be amateur, professional, etc., they're all in the same boat as far as we're concerned. They're, they're trying to make a living. They're trying to create really art and, and commercial art as well because that's, that's how you make livings. But uh, you, you need uh, good representation, first of all. You can't do it all by yourself. Uh, you know, like you, you can't count on your family real estate lawyer to uh, to negotiate a, a record deal for you. I mean, that 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 would be by by, by representation. Do you is, is that broad in the sense that it could be a booking agent representing you, a manager, a lawyer? It's just you need experts in certain fields to represent you. Yeah, because yeah, well, this business. You know, and then that manages lawyers and agents. And, you know, you need people who know what they're doing. And, you know, a lot of successful people, all of a sudden you have, you've got a manager, you've got a, a lawyer, you've got a business manager, you've got an accountant, you have an, you have an agent, and then you have, you know, different types of agents, film and TV agents, booking agents uh, of various sorts and stuff. So, uh, you know, in, in the end, here's a joke. In the end, 90% of your money is going out. Right. <laughs> 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 only, only kidding. Yeah, well, right. but, 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 this, but, you know, that the business, that, that, has, the business gonna, has gotten very, very complex from, from yes. the time that Todd and I first got into it. That, that's yeah. why you need a number of experienced elements around you if you're really going to make it uh, in, in this business, because there are just so many aspects. There are so many types of opportunities. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. Uh, some will, will help. Some will hurt. But all of them have complicated uh, language in many of the agreements, and uh, you just need people who really know what they're doing. You can't jump into anything just because the dollar money or the dollar amounts, you know, seem good at the time to you. You know, there's a whole bunch of other considerations that you need to look at, you know, before you do anything in this business. Yeah. And also, you know, we're going on the basis that that first part, talent, really means learn your craft. You've got to be good at what you do, whether you're a musician, whether you're a songwriter or a film and TV composer or you're dealing with video games. You have to have 
the craft in order to succeed. It's very rare that you have no talent person. And it happens. It's a rare exception that they make money. Most people got to have the goods before you even get into this whole thing. And that's a continuing process. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, one of the first things I did when I got the book is I went back to the table of contents and looked up streaming and I went right to that that chapter first because there's so much to know and there's so many misconceptions about streaming and how people are paid for streaming and I felt like you know, now that I've had a chance to go through uh, the book a little more carefully, that that's one of the best chapters today because it kind of demystifies that that whole area of streaming. Can you kind of, you know, because you guys have been around the business a while. You've seen it evolve. Can you speak to kind of the differences between uh, revenues in a streaming world versus, you know, physical goods? Well, yeah, well, I'll start off dealing with the Good. performance side and stuff, and then Jeff can go from there. Uh, you know, the you know, keep in mind, currently still, most of the money is still in traditional media, you know, whether it's radio or television, cable, you know, network and stuff like that. But the digital pie is growing significantly. It's still nowhere near where the traditional media uh, royalties are and stuff like that. But even on the performance side, when you start looking at uh, Spotify or Pandora or uh, Amazon Prime or, or YouTube and stuff, you know, people think they're doing well when they hear they've got a million streams, two million streams. You know, that's probably worth about $200, $300 to you in performance royalties. You have to have an extraordinary amount of streams these days to make money on the performance side. And that's the ASCAP, the MIC, SAC, and Global Music Rights when they have a performance of those got organizations. Yeah. But, you know, when you have a traditional radio main pop hit, I mean, you can, you can still make $500,000 to a million dollars on a major hit as a writer with an equal amount going to the music publisher. And that's just for performances, radio and TV uh, primarily. So you can see there's a big difference in numbers between the two types of uh, situations, the digital versus the traditional. Jeff? Yeah, and as far as the, the physical versus uh, digital distribution of, of product, let, let's t- take the difference between you know, physical albums, physical uh, you know, CDs, etc., and digital tracks and digital albums. Uh, obviously, the, the CD market has been you know, being re- reduced by about uh, 25 to 27 percent you know, per year. Um, you know, if, you're looking, if we look at a few weeks ago, I was looking at the, um, the Nielsen SoundScan tracks, and the number one song that was uh, a digital track sold 87,706 or 706 units. Now, that equates to $7,981 in songwriter music publisher royalties if we're looking at a .091 cent uh, statutory mechanical rate for each download uh, which occurs. This is far different than a few years ago where singles used to come out in the digital, you know, in the uh, traditional or in the digital area of selling a million, a million two, you know, two million units, you know, first week out. So that's totally changing because of streaming. Uh, as far as albums, same, same thing is occurring. You know, the, uh, the number of albums that are being sold are, are, are dim- diminishing every year. Uh, you know, you used to have, uh, you know, albums selling uh, two million units to five to become number one on the, uh, on the charts. Now you're looking at, uh, if you get to like 250,000 units the first week out, you're, you're doing very well. I'm not talking about the superstars, you know, uh, that they are still selling. But, you know, after the f- two or three superstars right at the top, 
the drop-off is substantial. So the streaming uh, area has certainly reduced the amount of money that the songwriters and music publishers have, have been making traditionally from the sale of downloads of albums and, and digital tracks. Quick question. So, so we, we, we've all seen the, the artists, and we don't need to name them, that, that show up in the press every week, every month, saying, oh, my God, I had... 5 million streams, and here's a copy of my statement showing I earned $500. Um, is, and, you know, and, and part of the frustration I feel is, well, you don't quite understand the business. And is that the root cause here, that stuff like streaming, the digital world of music, is evolving so quickly that artists that have been around, established artists haven't been able to keep up with the knowledge needed to understand how that's different than selling, you know, a, a vinyl LP in the 70s. Yeah, you know, you have a much different uh, definition of success these days. And it's most of the time you see those type of articles, they're people, it's the reality of what's going on here. But people, particularly a lot of creative people, and, and a lot of business people also, just don't get the significance of these changes. Uh, the, the, digital, the digital world has changed practically everything in music. Uh, you know, every contract now, every license and negotiation now has a digital element in it, whether it's traditional media, adding digital streaming services in there. And stuff. But it's an entirely new business, and that's why people who are locked into the old way of doing business and the numbers that they're used to uh, really can't understand what's happened here and you know they, they need to because it's not going to change uh, traditional uh, media businesses but all changing they know the future and uh, it's just something that has to be done but it's tough because if you're used to a certain type of doing business uh, certain type of royalties that are being generated in from you from different type of uses and the whole thing is all of a sudden up in stuff now, it's difficult, particularly if, uh, you know, you don't understand the uh, technology and what it's done and stuff. But, you know, I remember Jeff and I used to talk about when we first started, you had maybe four main sources of income. You looked at mechanicals, which obviously are not there anymore. You looked at performances, radio and TV primarily. That's big. That's growing still. You look at synchronization, you know, putting songs, pre-existing songs into audio-visual product, whether it's film, TV, all the new streaming services, uh, they all use music. That's a great area. And that's a lot of money. Now you need about 20 different types of sources of income to equal what you made from those four, you know, years ago. So it's a big learning curve. And uh, that's why we go through in the book so many different types of new uses, whether it's e-cards or holograms or sure. holograms or music and uh, all these different uh, new media and stuff. And to try to explain to people, this is the structure of the deals of these days. This is the type of royalties. And you better know this stuff because that's the future of this business. Well, you know, the best yeah, thing uh, about, I'm sorry, the best thing about the book is, is kind of what you just touched on. I I wasn't really aware of all of these different revenue streams. There's some obvious ones that we, you just touched on and that we talk about pretty regularly, but this book lists many, many different ways that artists can make um, revenue from their music that maybe they hadn't thought of, and I'm wondering if maybe we can touch base on a few of those. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, you've, you've got apps, you know, as, as one, one aspect, which can uh, be extremely valuable depending on the composition and depending on the app, of course. Uh, there are so many apps out there right now, and most are totally, uh, I shouldn't say totally unsuccessful, but, but really do not cause really large amounts of income being generated for the music in those apps. But, uh, you know, if you get into a tap-tap revenge or, you know, something like that, there was one... Uh, you know, game where uh, people would uh, actually sing into their phone, and uh, you know the the phone would uh, determine whether their pitch was right, et cetera, in their presentation. And you know there would be a, a song that would be uh, you know uploaded into into their phone. And basically, uh, I'm doing this off the top of my head right now. The the retail price was 99 cents to uh, to download or upload or download the song into your your phone. Uh, the Apple would take 30% off of that, so you're down to about 69 cents. Then uh, there was a developer involved who took another 30% off, so you, you were down to about 34 cents uh, net. And then the um, the songwriter and music publisher would get 50% of that. Now that's about you know 17 cents, which if you're in a successful app, you know if you've got a million units times 17 cents, that's an awful lot of money. So that's sure. one area that can be very valuable, but it's it's rare that you get an app that really really is so successful with music in that you're going to make money. Yeah, and Jeff, yeah. what you forgot to mention, the other seventeen cents goes to the record company and to the recording artist. So it's split seventeen cents to the writer and music publisher, seventeen cents to the uh, record company and artist. The most favored nations uh, situation, which is a clause that most people should be aware of. All that means is that the record record side gets the same as the music publishing side or vice versa in any negotiation. Got it. Yeah. Then you throw out something like, uh, you know, uh, toys, you know, that, that use music, and, you know, they're becoming more and more of those for, for younger kids primarily. Uh, you know, those... You know those type of toys can sell millions, depending on uh, on on the actual toy itself and the in the popularity. Those those uh, items are usually uh, the royalty stream is normally between ten and twelve percent of the the wholesale price. So if you've got a wholesale price of let's say four dollars, I'm just throwing out an example. Uh, you know the uh, the songwriter publisher royalty would be forty forty cents. Uh, you times that by. 100,000, 200,000, 300,000, uh, you know, it can be enormous amounts of money, especially there are certain toys that sell well at Halloween with songs in, there are Christmas toys, uh, it's unbelievable the amount of money that certain, you know, toys and the songs contain therein, uh, you know, earn. So that, that's just one area that people don't don't think about. Um, yeah. Um, I was talking yeah. about, you know, you got slot machines also, music and slot machines, you know, which uh, is a whole other area where you can actually make money. You know, because there are more and more slot machines that, you know, have music. Uh, sure. And, you know, basically those, you know, the fee structure is anywhere from $2.50 to $10 per song uh, per unit. Uh, you can advance, you know, based on a number of units. Uh, you know, usually there, there could be five-year licenses. So if the, uh, if the slot machine stays in the casino for over five years, you know, they renew, et cetera. All sorts of deals there, but there are things that people just don't think about. You yeah. know, when you're sitting in Las Vegas, you know, in front of a, a slot machine that plays a song that you actually recognize, someone's right. actually getting paid for that particular use. Whose job is it yeah, to yeah, find these opportunities? Go ahead. You know, just on the last one, it's a great thing. You're making money from people losing money. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> That's funny. Who's, whose job is it in this ecosystem to find these opportunities and these revenue streams? Is it the record company, the publisher, the manager, the lawyer, uh, or all of the above? Who, who, is, who should be out finding these opportunities? It's, it's really a combination of, of all of the above, depending on, on who is actually representing you. And uh, because there, there's so many things out there. I mean, I, I know, let's just take an example of uh, film or TV or, you know, you know we, to take Netflix. We, we know it's being, you know, coming, being shot on Netflix and other Warner Brothers uh, or other, uh, you know, productions, whether it be film or, or TV shows, et cetera. So both the music publisher in that case and the record company will be promoting songs and records to those particular episodes, to the uh, particular films. It's important to know, you know, who's producing the films, who are the music supervisors so you can get your music to, what type of music uh, a particular show uses. You know, that's why we tell our students at USC, look, I don't care if you like TV or don't like TV, this is a business, and if you want your songs placed, you better watch TV to see what certain, show, song, or certain shows are, are playing. Because, you know, last year I think there were 487 uh, scripted shows produced in the United States alone. Now, you start timesing that by 7 to 22 episodes per one of those shows. That's a lot of episodes for music to be used in. And many times, you know, these producers don't want the hit songs. You know, hit songs might be too expensive to place in certain shows. Uh, you know, they want an edgier music, so they'll look to indie record companies, indie bands, indie music. And that's why, you know, there's room for everyone. In fact, there's more and more room for the, uh, for the more indie-type music in most of these shows, uh, you know, than, than ever before, I think, right now. So it's just looking at doing your homework, looking at where the opportunities are, and knowing if you're promoting your music, you know, Promote it correctly. Don't send a producer of, of a show that's based in the 1950s with you know with songs written uh, in 2010 right. or 19 saying I think this will work for your show, etc. You know, you've got to study the shows because the way you present things, the music supervisor will look at you as either a professional or you're an amateur. And they won't come back to you again. Let, let me let me ask you. When it comes to placement, it seems to me that's an area, as you said, it it it's it's prime for the indie bands. Is that because, in to some extent, the music supervisors, the shows, don't really care about how successful the band is. It literally is all about the music. It's a hundred percent. If that song fits the specific need you could be playing a bar they don't care they you could have 10 people following you on facebook your stature is not what they're buying they're interested in the music yeah it's 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 the placement in the scene and how important it is to the scene uh now you know on, on occasion you'll have tv shows and tv producers and music supervisors timing certain uses for the release of an indie album, that's one thing, but they're not going to go out of their way to, to use a song or a song or a master that doesn't work. But it's really, you know, how does it work in the scene? You know, uh, the music supervisors, uh, they, they want to be authentic. They want things to, to be perfect for a particular scene. And, uh, you know, they'll choose what they, what they choose, uh, you know, what works, you know, so. Yeah, I think one of the struggles, you know, oh, go ahead. Also. 
uh, price is a factor also. Always keep that in mind because all these production companies, whether it's the Netflix, Amazon, Sulu's, or the major studios and stuff, they all have budgets, music budgets, and the, uh, the, all the songs and the score have to come in under, within these budgets. So, you know, if they're, they're looking at a major pop hit song or an old standard, you're dealing with a high-end price tag versus something much more reasonably priced and which may very well work better because it, the demographic of the audience is not for older songs, it's for new age, you know, new, new kind of stuff out there. Got it. And all those rates are negotiated, correct, for sync? They're, they're correct. It's all purely negotiated other than the rates that are in the... Uh, they're contained in the music-centric and dance-centric shows like The Voice, uh, So You Think You Can Dance, American Idol, uh, America's Got Talent, etc. Those, those rates are, are not negotiated. They're actually in, in, in the uh, proposed uh, request that comes from the TV company, and your, you know, your decision is to say either yes or no because all the songs and all the master recordings in those type of shows are on a most favored nations basis, meaning gotcha. that every single song is being played, paid the same amount of money for the for a similar use. But all other shows, pure negotiation uh, based on how much they want your song or master recording, and as Todd said, the music budget does it fit in uh, because you know music budget can only go so far, and you know many songs can be replaced, and that's one thing people have to realize. You know, one of one of the struggles for artists today is you know with socials with you know facebook twitter instagram um and you know trying to find some kind of correlation to that and you know popularity revenue uh putting butts in the seats those types of things um have you done any work with socials and also when it comes to youtube there's there's a lot of um, friction out there, a lot of complaining that YouTube doesn't pay their fair share. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on socials and YouTube. Well, first of all, part of the reason that people don't get, song, uh, get royalties on social media and YouTube uh, in particular is that uh, the, the, the metadata that uh, YouTube needs uh, is not provided by the, uh, by the people who actually control the master recording or the composition. Uh, one, one of the things you know, about the Music Modernization Act, and it has to do with data. Data is so important in this, in, in this area. And Todd can talk about the rates. Uh, for, for YouTube, but data is essential, which is why the Music Modernization Act was was important. It was passed last year, uh, and you know we're in the process right now of uh, you know I'm part of the on the board of the NMPA and the NSAI and the SONA, um, you know MLC, which is being uh, which we submitted our application to the Copyright Office uh, last week, um, and you know the whole point of the MMA and the MLC Music Licensing uh, Committee. Um, is uh, to create a database, which will be, you know, the finest database around, where all of the digital companies will have access to the correct information, so that, you know, they'll be able to pay every single song that is actually performed on YouTube, um, as opposed to now where the, the the data that they're looking at is is incomplete in many many respects. So part of it is a data issue. Todd, do you want to talk about the uh, the rates? Yeah, you know, with the rates and stuff, unfortunately, in this area, the whole uh, online streaming area, and this goes for audio, and it goes for audiovisual. So it's not only Spotify, Pandora, YouTube, but it's also Amazon, uh, Hulu, 
uh, you know, Netflix and all those. Sure. The the rates they're, they're all supposedly negotiated. They are negotiated, but when the let's say the performing rights organizations can't talk, come to an agreement with let's say with Netflix or Pandora, uh, and that's for the you know streaming obviously performances for writers and publishers. You know, it, it then goes to court and a judge sets what the rates should be in all these different areas. And unfortunately, up until at least recently, the rates that have been set by judges have not been terribly good in the songwriter uh, publisher area. They have been good in the sound recording area, meaning for artists and stuff uh, and for the record companies. The rates are very good uh, through Sound Exchange, which is the uh, one entity that collects a lot of that money. Right. But, uh, and people have to get understand also that if you, in the traditional world, let's say you have a performance on uh, NBC or CBS or ABC or HBO or uh, TNT, you know, whatever uh, show, there's a minimum base rate that everybody gets paid. Uh, so, and if you have success, you might you'd make more money based on some bonus structures that the PROs have. But in the stress, in the social media world, you know, you can have one performance, and it could be worth point zero 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 one two. Uh, you have ten performances, or a million performances. The rates are just so different that most people just can't connect a million performances on traditional radio to a million performances, let's say, on Spotify and Pandora. One, you can make a million dollars, and one, you can, you can make a uh, hundred dollars. So it's a learning curve again, but the rates up, at least up until now, for the song and the uh, music publisher, for their songwriters, have not been good. The record side, much better. In, in the book, do you provide, you know, the reader, the, the, the artist with... Um, Sample contracts, example contracts that they can use themselves. Yeah, but what do we do? We do two two things. We've got uh, up-to-date sample contracts in in the back, as far as uh, uh, television licensing, motion picture licensing, video game licensing, and and advertising commercial licensing. Plus, you know, copies of uh, mechanical licenses for both digital and for uh, physical product. In the book itself, basically, we do not have other contracts, but what we do is we go through, take the, uh, the area of, or the uh, chapter on co-publishing, we'll go through all the clauses that are contained in a co-publishing agreement or an exclusive songwriter agreement, and we'll explain what those clauses are. We'll also give uh, suggestions about what clauses you can actually put into an agreement uh, to ensure that if you're successful and you have got no bargaining power at the start of a deal, that at least you'll be paid and uh, you know uh, based on on your success or based on the income that comes in. So what we're trying to do is give people a lot of alternatives, but we're trying to explain in hopefully understandable language what all of these clauses mean, both uh, legally and financially and contractually. So at least you got a basic idea of uh, of what you're signing. Yeah. Would would, yeah, would in, in, in most cases the in most cases the publisher or the record company or whoever is using it will provide their contract to you. So uh, you're not really uh, you're not really starting the process office. They give you the contract, and then it's important for you to understand which clauses you can negotiate, which clauses are standard, and which ones really don't make any difference. You have to know what to give up and also what to really bargain for. You you know, with all of these different revenue streams, and, and it seems like things are evolving and changing so fast, um, 
can you give us kind of a, a high level look at like what does that pie look like now compared to maybe what it looked like when I was growing up in the business and it was just you know uh, you would have tour revenue, you would have the album revenue, and maybe if you were lucky, you had some sync revenue. But now, how are artists making most of their money? Well, well one of the things you need, if, you, if you're a writer artist, it's absolutely great because you can count on the performance money. Just the, the performance rights organizations in the U.S., they collect about $2.8 billion, which goes out to songwriters, composers, and publishers. So you, you want to be a writer, artist, uh, if at all possible. Uh, and that's ASCAP, just, BMI, CSAC, those, those kind of yeah. PROs? Exactly, and you look at bands. Let's say the Beatles. You got Lennon and McCartney. Uh, with the Doors uh, was great because they all shared equally, as I recall, the four band members. So you have various writing teams within these bands, and you know once you start seeing the royalties that come in on the writer side, both in the U.S. and from outside the U.S., I mean it's extraordinary. That's really where the big money is, and there are no there are no uh, you know, deletions or anything else or expenses attached to that money. So it's great that everybody else has to really count on record sales. Uh, live performances obviously is big. They'll get a piece of uh, sync licensing when they sync the master, use the master recording, and uh, when any song is being used in audiovisual products or in video games. So, uh, Jeff? Yeah, but I must say there, there has been enormous increases. And in, I look at our statements and our income for songwriters, et cetera, enormous increase in synchronization income. It's just, it's just amazing, uh, only because I mentioned before the number of opportunities in the United States alone with scripted series, uh, you know, non-scripted series also. Uh, that's a major, major portion of anyone's income stream right now. Obviously, you've got to have the right song, the right, right master, but uh, it's, it's just enormous. And I, I love the sync area because and anything can happen, you know, which is just out of the ordinary sometimes. You know, songs are, and masters are found. Uh, you know, I don't know if you guys have seen the, the most recent True Detective, the HBO series. Sure. Uh, we, we, we licensed a, uh, an, uh, a Sunhouse song. Uh, it was a blues artist. Uh, he was actually recorded by Alan Lomax back in 1941 and 1942, and he was working for the Library of Con Congress. Uh, we licensed one of his songs as the theme, The True Detective. I can't get into how much we made, but uh, theme songs are very valuable because, you know, you get a, a sync fee for every single episode, you know, that the theme song is used in, in, in an episode. And a lot of times you get guarantees of a certain number of episodes. But here's a song that, that people really respected but, yeah. you know, had not seen the light of day. And that's why I, I, just, I just love, you know, the synchronization business because you never know where a song or a master recording is, is going to be discovered again. Uh, it's yeah. really, really it, it can really and, and bring life back way, to an artist. Right, go ahead, Michael. I was just going to say, you know, a, a sync can bring life back to an artist who thought the career was over. Yes, yep. And and what's the best way okay. to pitch for that? Is that through a sync licensing company, or is it typically better to go through the sync licensing people at a label or distribution? Are are there better ways to go about securing those? Well, yeah. I, all all I know, at least from my experience, so, you know, I, I'm I'm with BMG, so it's you know we've got our whole synchronization department, so so that's how they do it. And Todd, you want to jump in on this or? 
For sure. I mean, it's mainly that all the big publishers, even the minor ones, and, and all the record labels, they have people that are doing this on a constant, on a daily basis and stuff. But they need, they need the contacts. That's why it's easier for those people because they're actually in the business. And, uh, it's easier than gotcha. somebody just coming straight off the street trying to get a placement. There are also companies out there, you know, Taxi and others, that do, you know, you do sign with them and they try to get sync licenses, placements with you. Uh, but, uh, you know, you never want to give up your copyright, your ownership of your song in those situations. But there are a lot of companies that, that do it. Some of our, some are very good, some are medium, and some are uh, not good at all. What yeah, kind of a piece really do they typically take? Oh, I, I, I well, first of the, the, the whole, there's a whole issue of whether they're exclusively representing your song or non-exclusively representing your song. But I, I've seen anywhere from, you know, ten to fifteen percent to uh, to twenty-five percent and above even. Todd. Yes, same. It's uh, and it normally deals with the sync fees. Sometimes they'll ask for some of the performance money also. But again, as long as you're not giving up the copyright, uh, you can make a, a you know deal that you know to get a placement is important because all of a sudden you've got a credit. And you need credits in this business because people will start to deal with you the more credits you have. So that's why we always tell people, don't ever blow a deal. You may make a wrong choice on the amount of money that you, you're asking for, that you're taking stuff. But as long as you're not giving up the copyright, uh, unless it's a work-for-hire situation where someone's actually asked you to write specifically for a show or a feature film or something gotcha. like that, then the copyright is transferred. But any other situation, pre-existing works in a sync license, as long as you don't give up the, uh, you can make a mistake on money, just don't make a mistake on ownership. So it, you're encouraging people to go ahead and do it, even if it's not a, a ton of money, because work begets work. You got it. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, if you're, if you're signing an exclusive agreement in this area, you know, this, these promotion areas, you know, just make sure you've got clauses in there that you can actually get out if nothing happens after a certain period of time, you know, and so you're not just locked up in, into one person. So there are lots of protections you can build in, and uh, which, which you normally can insert into an agreement. Uh, but doing your homework is really important. Finding out the reputation of the company that, that you're dealing with uh, is, is absolutely essential, as well as the connections that they really have as opposed to the connections that they say they have. Gotcha. Gotcha. So so guys, where can um where can our listeners track down your book? <laughs> well, they they can go to Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Amazon. And now if Amazon you've got Yeah. You've got both the the physical copy and and the digital version. I I forget. You remember how long the digital version is, Todd? Yeah, it's thousands of pages. <laughs> yeah, it, it is funny. <laughs> but but the, search, the search aspect is great. Jeff and I are selling the physical copies on it, which is like 656 pages. But, That's but right. Amazon's the best. The price is good. They've got a good discount on it. And any bookstore will have it uh, also. Yeah, yeah so I'm not going to ask you like, about the audio book because it would take you probably a year to do it. <laughs> it's so much. <laughs> Exactly. Well, as, as as both you guys know, that if we sold the physical book by by poundage, Todd and I would be millionaires. Right. Okay. Yes, would. But you know what? Th this thing is a beast. Um, I have never, you know, like we all grew up with, you know, Donald Passman's book, and there's a lot of great books out there. But honestly, I have never seen a book that was this comprehensive. I mean, my mind was blown just going through this. 
Um, and I highly encourage anybody, I'm going to hold it up so people can see it. Here's the book. Um, the, you know, the insider's guide to making money in the music business. It's uh, a fantastic work, you guys. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Hey, most appreciated. This was a lot of fun. Really, this was great. Well, thank awesome. you. Uh, thank you for joining us because we, we, we love sharing information like this with our listeners who, for the most part, are the DIY artists, the indie artists. And as you guys know, they're always scratching their head going, what are the revenue streams for me out there? I can't sell music. Yeah. Well, hey, that, you know, last, last week, Jeff and I were in Nashville at Belmont University. We spoke at the Music Educators Conference. So all the, the teachers of music business throughout the United States and stuff, we went through this exact same thing uh, as to all sources of income, what you have to know. So, you know, Everybody needs to learn this stuff, whether you're a DIY artist or a songwriter or someone teaching the music business to others, uh, including lawyers, managers, agents, and everybody else. So uh, it's, it's, been, it's been great fun, and it's been uh, a real worthwhile experience for us. And uh, I really enjoyed both you guys, man. I tell you, hey, well, it's it's thanks so much. And, and I hope you guys will join us again. And, you know, much success to you. And we'll spread the news about the book. But uh, fantastic. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. It's been great. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. This thing's a beast. It is. Um, it's one of those things where you can just go through it with a highlighter pen. And there's certain things that will be more important to you than others. But like I said, the first thing I did is I jumped to the streaming section because there's so much to know about how revenue is made from streaming. And there's so many different types of streaming. You know, there's ad supported. There's on demand. There's interactive, non-interactive. There's and this explains everything very simply in, you know, not a lot of legal jargon. And I think it it's a great way of educating yourself. And if there's one thing that you and I talk about every week, that's educating yourself. Yeah, it you know, and educating yourself isn't just for the brand new artist. Because as we've talked about and as we can all see, there's many long-established artists that I think could educate themselves on the new business. I'm not saying they don't know anything about yeah. the music business, but it's this new business, understanding where the revenue streams are coming from, how they're getting split, who's taking a cut off of it. How how it how do you end up with pennies on the dollar when you think you should be yeah. ending up with dollars? Yeah, where does the money go? And I would even add into that managers, because I've worked with, and so have you, work with some of the most iconic managers in the business. And some of them know touring like nobody's business. They know, they know you press, know, they know publicity, they know right, but merchandising. But no one knows it all. Yeah, you know, well, they specialize. Yeah, you know, and, and again, I don't want this to, to be ind indicative of all managers, but, you know, when you've got old school managers, they are probably less likely to understand aspects of the new business. They may have people in their company who are the experts of it, and that's what they do. They go out and hire the people who know. Um, but you, you, you do need to, you yourself as an artist need to educate yourself. So when you are meeting with a manager or an agent, you understand what they're talking about. You understand what they're ignoring and you can ask the questions. You can ask the right yeah. questions. Yeah, and it used to be 
a lot of these managers that have been a lo- around a long time, a lot of their job was handled by the record company. So they handled their business and the record company handled theirs. But that line has been blurred now. Managers, some management companies are production places and record labels and distribution and all wrapped in. And so these days, you need to educate yourself on all of these things, like you said, so you can have those intelligent conversations and ask the right questions. Yep, yep. So go out, do yourself a favor, get the book, educate yourself a little bit at the time. You know, I don't think anybody's expecting you to sit down and read the whole book cover to cover you know, in a weekend, um, but understand what's in there. And when the appropriate time comes, maybe then you read that specific chapter about um, slot machines because all of a sudden there's an opportunity for a slot machine deal for you. Okay, read about it. Educate yourself right now. Yeah, it's a great reference. All right, everybody, that's it. Music Biz Weekly Podcast. We're out of here. We'll see you next week.